What is up, plant people? It's Friday, June 12th, 2020, and this is a bonus episode of the Planthropology Podcast. I am Vikram Baliga, your host, and uh, something different today. So I know I told you that um, we'd be going back to our normal every other week schedule or first and third Tuesday schedule, and I mostly didn't lie. I might have lied a little bit, but not on purpose. So as I've talked about a couple of times, and um, hopefully you've heard the, the promo for I've started a second show uh, with my friend Erfan Vafai, who I believe was episode nine of Planthropology. If you hear me clicking around here in the background, I am double checking. Yes, episode nine, Entomology, PhDs, and Sci-Fi Monsters with Erfan Vafai. Well, again, he reached out a while back to see if I'd like to co-host a show with him. And of course, I thought that would be a wonderfully fun idea. So I wanted to share with you the first episode of the Jolly Green Scientists podcast, which came out earlier this week on Tuesday. So that one will release the second and fourth Tuesday of the month. So kind of in between Planthropology episodes. And uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, We've recorded three episodes so far and they're all great. The show's up in most of the podcast places already. We're still working on a couple, but I've shared links for everywhere you can listen and subscribe in the show notes. It would be a big help if you'd go ahead and subscribe to Jolly Green Scientists. And if you're on Podchaser or Apple, please leave us a review. Um, That feedback right at the beginning will really help with getting us some extra visibility and making sure that we are going about this the right way and doing the things that you want to hear. And I can't wait for you to hear all this stuff. So uh, join the Planthropology's Cool Plant People Facebook group, as well as the Jolly Green Scientist Facebook group and the group for Airfon's other show, Talking Bugs, which launches this month as well. Lots of cool sciencey podcast stuff going on right now. Love you guys. You're the best. I'm going to stop talking and we're going to jump into episode one of Jolly Green Scientists right now. And I'll see you on Tuesday with episode 20, which is a big milestone with my dear friend, Dr. Becky Bowling. You know, for a, for a green industry professional, the takeaway here, right, is that if you're using a certain insecticide on a regular basis and you find a certain flare up or problems that are increased as a result, uh, secondary problems that come out as a result of the application, pay very close attention to that because it might be a real pattern and it might be something worth looking into and maybe don't use that insecticide, switch out for something else. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your host, Irfan Vafai with Texas A&M AgriLife Extension and your co-host, uh, Vikram Baliga with Texas Tech University. And this is Jolly Green Scientists, where we will digest data from science articles and popular science magazines relevant to the green industry and translate them to how it might look in practice or day-to-day use in, by green industry professionals. Yeah, and I think that you know if if you're out there and and have been on the internet ever, uh, mm-hmm. there is a lot of information that flies around out there in in you know every scientific field. But uh, the green industry is no different from um, you know climate change to entomology and horticulture, and you know which is kind of where we'll be focusing on entomology and horticulture. But there's a lot of info out there, and we want to help. Um, maybe make it a little more digestible and, and take some of these concepts and, and present them to you in a, a conversational kind of way. 
Yeah. And, you know, I came up with this kind of idea because both you and I uh, did our PhDs at the same time as working. Uh, is that right? Yeah. Well, I'm still doing it. So, yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, we're both, we're both working <laughs> professionals that are kind of, in a way, serving the green industry, right? So, I have an entomology background and you have a horticulture background. And as a part of that PhD, oftentimes you are doing seminars or coursework that involves reading a scientific paper on a weekly basis and digesting it and discussing it. Well, my coursework has come to an end. I know you're very close to finishing up your PhD. Yeah. Yeah, I actually, uh, uh, actually just scheduled my defense today for uh, June 12th. Wow. So actually right after, uh, I think right after this episode comes out, I'll be defending. Oh my goodness. Yes, Good no, I'm with crying that. on the inside. I'm screaming. Will, my eyes are screaming will, right now. <laughs> we will know whether you passed or not based on the fact of when that next episode occurs. Yeah, yeah it might never happen. <laughs> I might just like, you know, move to the mountains and hunt squirrels for a living. Yeah, if, if you don't pass it, I'm going to have to replace you with someone more competent <laughs> that can actually pass their defense. <laughs> so I'm Airfon, and here's a real scientist that's not victim. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, so my, my coursework came to an end and, you know, but I didn't want to stop uh, reading papers, you know, uh, have, building that habit. Uh, can be a little bit difficult when you're doing it on your own. So I thought using this method, not only are you and I helping each other learn more about the field, staying current on uh, research that's just coming out, but also being able to share that in a way that allows us to further digest that information, further understand it, and learn how it actually applies to green industry personnel. Yeah, no, that's great. And it, you know, it's always, it can be tough, um, especially maybe when you don't, like you're not writing a paper, you don't have to, it can be tough in the industry to really keep yourself in the literature and yeah. find new things and, and to branch out. You know, I fall into this, uh, oh, I'm going to read lots of papers about water conservation or lots of papers about this one narrow thing that my dissertation's on, but we're so connected and all of these green sectors are so interconnected that it's, I think, super important for all of us, uh, whether you're a scientist or a layperson or anyone in between, to make sure that you're getting good information from lots of sources. And that kind of covers the whole gambit of, of the things that you work with. That's right. So, you know, while, before we kind of jump into this whole series, you know, I think the idea was we're going to release um, an episode every two weeks and we're going to discuss one or two either scientific articles or popular science articles, depending on kind of what we select for that particular episode. And, uh, but before we even jump into that, you know, I thought maybe this first episode, we'll kind of talk about us, you know, who, who are we, what's our background, what kind of research have we done? Uh, I don't know if that's going to lend any credibility, but at least uh, let or, our listeners or, know. Or ruin our credibility. It's hard <laughs> right. Yeah, very possible as well. But at least kind of gives people, uh, listeners, uh, an idea of who we are and where we come from. So why don't, why don't you go ahead first? Sure. Yeah. So like I said, uh, my name is Vic Rumbaliga. I am currently um, the manager of the uh, university teaching and, and research greenhouse here at Texas Tech University in the uh, Department of Plant and Soil Sciences. And so um, I've been in this job about two years, uh, started in April of 2018. Um, before that, I was a county extension agent in horticulture, uh, still here in Lubbock, um, for about four years before that, so for, for quite a while. And so, um, you know, my focus for really the past six or I was in industry before that. So really even more six or eight years has been, um, in 
resource conservation, specifically in water. I've spent, a, you know, my, my dissertations on water conservation in the urban landscape. And, but I've worked in, you know, community programming in water conservation, a lot of community programming in uh, local food production. That's a big thing that I work into. And so uh, I kind of have done a little bit of a lot of things in the industry. Uh, I was a landscaper for a couple of years. My master's degree was in olive trees, uh, actually still in water, but um, in South Texas, olive production. And then, oh, neat. So you were looking at what different irrigation practices or? Yeah. So we were looking at different varieties and different irrigation regimes um, because kind of the, the I guess, common, I don't want to say common knowledge, but the um, theory was that most growers were maybe over irrigating their olives. Now, olive trees are a very drought tolerant crop. You know, they grow in the Mediterranean where it rains sometimes uh, when mm -hmm. it thinks about it, maybe, um, or in parts of Spain that are very dry. Um, not the plains part where it apparently rains. Uh, no, nothing. Okay. That's how you go. It's fine. It's fine. We're going to tell a lot of stupid jokes, by the way. That's, that's going to be great. It's going to be a thing. Um, but and yeah. since we're, and since we're both in different fields, we won't get each other's jokes, but hopefully. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Oh no. And so, and everyone's going to be like, what just what's going okay, Anyway, it's fine. I'm moving on. Um, so yeah, we were looking at different varieties and different irrigation regimes to see, is there a way that growers could reduce their water consumption while still maintaining output? Uh, which is the goal, right? You want to save yeah. your resources, but not hurt your productivity. So have they thought, you know, what I've been doing uh, with my olives is, you know, they're sitting in a jar of liquid in their refrigerator. Have growers considered that? Yeah, way too much. They all they are <laughs> salt tolerant. Water. Yeah. Okay. Well, they, so they okay. are salt tolerant, but probably not that okay. salt tolerant. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so many nerdy, nerdy jokes. It's going to be great. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, so so why, why did you end up in horticulture? Why are you studying? Why? Good question. Or, or even water conservation. What got you into that? Well, so I don't know if you've ever been out to West Texas to Lubbock, but it's so dry. Uh, we haven't had any rain in about six weeks. And oh my goodness. It, like no, like really no rain at all. And it's supposed to be about 101 degrees today and the wind's blowing at about 30 miles per hour. So yeah, we've had, we've had uh, a new lake form and dry up in our backyard at least two or three <laughs> times a week here in East Texas. <laughs> yeah. You can send us some of that. We're in, <laughs> our average is like 19 inches of rainfall. Um, we've had three and a half this year and it's May. So it's oh, been, Oh my goodness. It, it's been a, it's been a dry year, right? So that, the, the economy is hitting the water as well. It's yeah. The, uh, yeah. It seems yeah. like the water's quarantined too. Yeah. Uh, all the clouds are staying away. Um, <laughs> People are using water less. So it's going into the air less and thus <laughs> not dropping down as much. You know, that's interesting. It's an interesting <laughs> thought. Uh, so, you know, we're talking about climate impacts of, of this quarantine and that maybe, I don't know. There you go. Uh, but no, so that's how I kind of got into water. Also, there was funding um, during my master's. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. when I started, it was like, are you interested in olives? Well, no, but there's funding. Well, yeah, I love olives. Yeah. Perfect, right? <laughs> right. Um, so no, I actually, when I started school and I actually uh, have a degree from Texas A&M, my undergrads from A&M, um, I started in biomedical engineering. Whoa. Yeah. Okay. Hold up. Time out. Uh-huh. You're, you're planning on medical school. Yeah. 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 I was oh, yeah. going to make my parents proud. Yeah. Same. And then I, same. And then I changed my mind. 
Yeah, me too. <laughs> and decided to be a huge disappointment. It's great. <laughs> no, so I did a year of biomedical engineering. I interned with a doctor over the summer or like worked in a doctor's office. And I realized that I, you know, so my goal was I was going to go and like uh, be a doctor and build prosthetics and all this stuff. But then I realized that I don't like calculus and mm. I don't like blood. Mm. And those were going to be two problems, right? Um, as an engineer and doctor. Apparently. And so I went to uh, just a general studies advisor. I was like 19 years old. And I was like, I have no idea what the heck I'm doing with my life. And they're like, well, what do you like? And, you know, so some of my earliest memories were gardening with my granddad. And so I told them that. And they're like, well, have you thought about horticulture? And so flash forward, what, 13 years. And here we are. Wow. Getting my third degree in it. You know, it's kind of funny because I'm thinking about, you know, my first year biology course. Uh, in my undergraduate degree, there was about 600 students in this room. Mm -hmm. And I remember the professor saying, uh, if you're wanting to go to medical school, put up your hand. And probably about 95% of the class put up their hands. And he said, okay, now everyone put your hands back down. We did. And he was like, that's how many of you are getting in. <laughs> Encour Mr. Encouragement, right, man? Very great professor. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, I got to intern. I wanted to be a, a pediatrician originally, okay. you know, and uh, I shadowed a pediatrician. And it was, uh, for me, it was a little sad. I mean, I, I don't know, maybe I would imagine you get used to it as a pediatrician, but you're dealing with sick children, you know, or in his case, he did both hospital and clinical and in the clinic, he was dealing with things like bullied kids, you know, and it was almost wow. more psychology than it was, you know, just a cough or whatever. And so, you know, I wasn't super inspired from that, but it wasn't until I had a couple courses, uh, related to entomology, my undergrad, that I started finding it very interesting. I even had, uh, you know, I had an opportunity to work with a professor over a summer studying cold tolerance of insects. And a part of it was, uh, you know, some insects can tolerate being completely frozen and then thawing out and still being alive. And they're looking at how to, you know, how can you artificially do that in insects that can't naturally do it? So it's like beginnings of cryopreservation, right? So we're, instead of sending humans into outer space, now we can send out fruit flies to do our space exploration. Hmm. That's the, that's their master plan, right? And, uh, but so from there, I started getting really inspired just with the scientific method, with research and insects. And so from there, I just consistently had more and more opportunities. Uh, I had this one course called chemical ecology, which is, you know, the interactions between different chemicals and ecosystems. So a caterpillar chews on a plant, that plant can release volatiles, release chemicals into the air that attracts a predator of that caterpillar. And I just thought that was like really cool. Yeah. And and he spoke about that in the context of, you know, applied ecology. And that is basically agriculture. You know, how do you use that now to benefit growers? So for me, that was like the huge inspiration moment that I kept seeking opportunities to keep doing uh, research in that area. I did my master's uh, West Coast Canada, so originally from Canada. And I did my master's at Simon Fraser University, and I studied a uh, little called parasitic wasps. These little wasps that lay eggs inside other insects, and that egg develops into a little larva that eats the insides until nothing's left but um, the carcass of that insect, and out comes a new wasp, basically like the movie Alien. So I studied that. Uh, there are wasps of aphids on blueberries, uh, and then I had some opportunities to work in 
uh, for a few startup companies in LED lighting related to ag. And one was uh, building greenhouses in the city and direct, uh, direct sale of produce to grocery stores. Uh, and then I was working for another nonprofit company in Ontario that's, you know, was helping essentially the horticulture industry there. And then I got hired into this position at Texas A&M where I'm uh, basically an entomologist slash integrated pest management special program specialist as uh, the Fancy full title. title. Yeah. Fancy title. <laughs> Fancy title. Basically just means I'm I'm uh, a, a research and extension educator. And by extension, I mean, you know, doing presentations or producing publications or podcasts, whatever it might be, uh, specifically for the green industry in Texas or or nation or international. And um, and what was I going to say? Yeah. So, oh, yeah, specifically, especially related to crop protection. So uh, when we're talking mainly insects, so how to prevent insect infestation, how to manage them, insecticidal control, beneficial insects using those, so on and so forth. Uh, and so that's kind of my background in a nutshell. You know, I'm, I'm about a year away, anticipated about a year away from defending my PhD, which is, uh, yeah, getting there. I got one more field season, hopefully. No global pandemics slow me down. I guess yeah, we'll right. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, and so, uh, yeah, I'm studying, you know, this particular pest of poinsettias. You know, poinsettias are huge. And um, using beneficial insects, uh, one's a predatory mite, one's a parasitic wasp, small little wasp again, to manage this insect pest on poinsettias. So instead of a lot of growers might be spraying insecticides on a weekly basis. We're looking at using these beneficial insects to uh, suppress uh, that that particular pest. That's awesome. So, yeah, that's kind of my background in a nutshell. Very cool. Very cool. So, I mean, I think this is going to – I'm really looking forward to doing the show. You know, I do uh, – and here's a here's a shameless plug. Uh, but I do another podcast called uh, uh, Planthropology. And, um, you know, in that one I talk to – uh, and, and I imagine some of the people listening to this probably listen to that as well, but I hope so if you're, if you're, you know, <laughs> uh, <laughs> listeners, I hope you're listening to this show, but, uh, you know, we talk more on that show. I talk more to scientists that are kind of in the industry, but it's more about the scientists themselves. And I'm really looking forward to getting to dive into the literature a little bit more and talk yeah. about the subject matter in the science just a little bit more. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So our first pick paper that we got picked out. Uh, I thought would would kind of bridge the gap a little bit between you know plant planthropologists, plant science, <laughs> and, uh, and and entomology because it's looking at uh, non target impacts essentially of this of an insecticide and how it can alter plant defenses against a, an insect. So uh, the the actual paper title is is a little bit fancy here. Neonicotinoid insecticides alter induced defenses and increase susceptibility of spider mites in distantly related crop plants. And uh, this is Schizopeniac. I, I really hope I didn't butcher that name. Dr. Schizopeniac <laughs> et al. Uh, and this is published in PLOS One, which is a very reputable journal and uh, published back in 2013. So it's not super current, but still uh, super relevant. Yeah. And so, um, you know, what they did in this paper, you know, there's this anecdote, and I don't know if you've seen this or, or heard of this as well, Vikram, where, uh, you know, people apply certain pesticides and you get, you know, you're applying it for, say, aphids. And all of a sudden there's an outbreak of another pest. Mm -hmm. uh, so it might be, you know, spider mites all of a sudden. 
And sometimes this is, or oftentimes, this is attributed to uh, potentially harming the beneficial insects, the predators that you don't see on there that are managing the spider mites. So yeah, you apply to, yeah. No, sorry. Uh, I'll try not to cut you off. <laughs> no, no, no. That that's exactly you know. I think with the the um, sort of uh, general knowledge and general thought about that is is uh, mm-hmm. you know you spray a, a, an insecticide and and you know so I'm not an entomologist so you know some of my questions are like I have no idea so all you know and and so I think that the things that I know about entomology are maybe what some of the folks out there listening kind of might think as well but yeah that's what I've heard over and over through the years is uh I'll be careful with your um you know some of your systemic neonics neonicotinoids because they'll make your they'll, they'll make your spider mites worse because they kill all your ladybugs or they kill whatever else right uh, and that's what I've always thought yeah, yeah, and a, a very common one used uh, by by homeowners, home gardeners, is like seven dust or carbaryl, mm-hmm. you know, and that one it works very well on it works very well on beetles, and so if you do have beneficial lady beetles and you use that, you know, we've had a colleague in Dallas show when you use it against crepe myrtle bark scale on crepe myrtles, seven dust does nothing against the crepe myrtle bark scale, but it decimates the beneficial beetles and you get about a three to four fold increase in the number of scale population. So no, that's not ideal. Not only have you spent money and effort on applying an insecticide, but you've just, you know, exasperated the problem, right? (laughs) You like made it even worse. Uh, So this paper, they are investigating this this anecdote, right? This observation that people have noticed that when you apply neonicotinoid insecticides, uh, that all of a sudden you end up with a flare up, an increase in spider mite populations. And there were some studies, some previous studies that showed uh, it actually did not have impacts on the non- non-targets, the beneficial insects, uh, as they thought it would. And so then there were the second question they went to ask or they were investigating was, well, how, you know, what is the mechanism? What is the reason why spider mite populations are increasing? And is it related to plant defenses? So they looked at a number of, you know, distantly related plants, right? So we're looking at what it was, uh, cotton, uh, shoot, what are the plants? Yeah, cotton, um, I'll have to look again, tomatoes, corn, and maybe that was it. That may be it. Yeah, I think that was it. Yeah, so those three. I mean, are those three, uh, I take it, based on what they said, are not closely related? Right, no. So uh, they're all, and, and that's probably why they picked them, right? So yeah. um, cotton, uh, gossypium hirsutum is in the the mallow or the uh, hibiscus family. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, corn is a big grass that we decided to eat for some reason. And uh, <laughs> tomato is a, is a nightshade. So they are very, very distantly related. Um, and, but uh, th- that being said, they all have um, big pest problems and they're all very susceptible to spider mites. Yeah. And so what's really neat here, right, is they applied um, a few different types of uh, insecticides in this class known as neonicotinoids. So they used, uh, it was imidacloprid and thymethoxam, I think are at least two of the ones they applied. I think they may have done uh, a third as well. And, and then they uh, looked at first, how did that impact the spider mite populations? And secondly, quantified a number of um, molecules or hormones that we know are associated with 
plant defenses. And essentially what they found in all of them was that you do find an increase. Uh, what was it? Between 30 to over 100% uh, yeah. increase. And even and that was in the greenhouse and in the field, yeah. they found nearly 200% mm-hmm. increase in spider mite populations as a result of, of the applications. And, um, and they also found, you know, the mechanism. So they found decreases in a number of defense compounds that uh, basically would typically be used uh, against herbivores, right? Against pests that might feed on them. Yeah. And that's so fascinating to me. And and that, you know, and I know that we can't apply this to all plant systems and all, and that's something I think that's important Mm -hmm. for people to understand as we talk about these things is that these, these papers and not just our papers, but in any discipline, most papers refer to a very specific set of parameters and uh, situations, types of uh, products used, types of, um, you know, metrics and all that. So, we have to be careful, I think, um, in general across the sciences and in the public of, of extrapolating too much, right? Uh, right. But this does kind of go against that common conception that, oh, your populations go up because you've killed the predators. When right. we're not really seeing that in this paper, it's the actual um, physiological effect on the plant itself um, that may be leading to the increase because the plants can't essentially defend themselves. Right. And that's, that's, a, that's interesting to understand or to, to think about too, because in, in any ecosystem, right, there is uh, a, a pretty delicate predator prey relationship. And we mm-hmm. tend to think about that, I think in terms of ladybugs eating aphids and that's the predator and the prey, but you've also got to look at it as the aphids and the plants, because that, is also the predator and the prey. So your plants have also uh, evolved defense mechanisms to protect themselves in the absence of ladybugs. Since all these populations come and go, that plant has to be able to take care of itself a little bit. That's right. And something uh, in addition to note here, right, is that they did also try uh, seed treatments. So, you know, it's not uncommon for whether it be corn or cotton. Some of these, um, you know, field crops are treated. The seed is actually treated with the neonicotinoid insecticide because it's taken up systemically, right? This is a class of insecticides that's taken up by the plant and gives it protection for a prolonged period of time by basically going throughout the entire plant. And so uh, by being in the seed, it usually provides somewhere between three, four, maybe five weeks of protection, I think usually. And what they found was as a seed treatment, for whatever reason, we you do, you do not see that increase in the spider mite population. It was only when they really did the foliar applications, uh, when they're looking at cotton in the field, uh, that they saw those increases in, in spider mites. So hmm. what's really fascinating, again, is that it can be specific to the method in which it's applied. And I think, you know, for, for a green industry professional, the takeaway here, right, is that if you're using a certain insecticide on a regular basis and you find a certain flare up or problems that are increased as a result, uh, secondary problems that come out as a result of the application, pay very close attention to that because it might be a real pattern and it might be something worth looking into and maybe don't use that insecticide, switch it out for something else because all these insecticides, I can't remember who it was that said, you know, uh, you know, it's kind of funny the way they put it was when, when these companies, these chemical companies find these new candidate chemicals that could be used as an insecticide, 
they don't jump out. The chemical doesn't go like, hey, I kill bugs or like, hey, I only kill aphids, you know, like, hey, this is what I do, right? It's like some kind of chemical that has activity on a whole bunch of different um, you know, activation sites on different hormones or on different proteins. And they need to find out uh, what kinds of targets, you know, how specific are they, are those to the, to those targets? And then at what dosage do you need to apply? That's why it's so important to follow that label rate. At what dosage will it really impact one target site more than other things? And so it's always possible that you might have these non-target impacts that just were not anticipated. Like, I don't, I don't know that they knew that this would decrease plant defenses when they first found this chemical and started commercializing it. Yeah. And that's such a good point. And I'm sure that, uh, the phrase read the label, follow no, the label yeah. is something we'll say a lot, like a whole every lot. single episode. Yeah. At, yeah. at least <laughs> once it's in our contracts, right. That we have, to <laughs> right. um, yeah. but no, th- that is very important. And so, uh, I- I- as long as you were, and, and that is a good point because even if you're following label recommendations, right, you might find something new. We don't, mm-hmm. but a big thing yeah. about science that's important for people to understand, including, and I think it's important for us scientists to remind ourselves of is we don't, we don't know everything. Right. And right. the, the whole scientific process, if you, you know, drill down through it, it's observation and then trial and error, right? Yeah. You, you observe a phenomenon and then, you figure out why, right? And and mm-hmm. uh, trial and error, I think maybe should be called error and trial, right? We we make more errors over and over and over, and then we eventually come up with something that works, and we figure out why. So I think um, as we read through these papers, that's something really important to keep in mind: is that uh, science is something that always keeps happening, and even in established fields, it's something we keep trying to improve our methodology, to improve our um, products and, and our research so that at the end of the day, our goal is to make the world better, I think. Right. And so whether that's through controlling aphids or whatever else that, you know, we're doing, I think that's our goal is to improve the quality of the world around us in this green industry. That's right. I think that's very nicely put. And I think that's a good kind of concluding statement for our first episode. That is our goal here, hopefully with this podcast to help, disseminate some of this information and just help maybe contribute to the green industry personnel that are listening in. Uh, Again, might get some interesting information or helpful tips that might help them in their day-to-day job. So I want to thank y'all again. Yeah, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, and if you're, uh, even if you're not in the green industry, if you're, you know, a a homeowner or, or anyone that's even interested, um, we want to give you good information too. And, uh, you know, if if you have questions or, or thoughts of things that we can cover, you know, throw them at us. Yeah, absolutely. Please do. Uh, we do have an email that's jollygreenscientists at gmail.com. Or you might be able to message us through the podcast. I don't know how that works. I don't actually either. What is a pod? Yeah. What is, how does a, how what do are we, we doing? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I don't know why. I don't know how I got here. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, thank you so much, Vikram, for joining me. Uh, yeah. Thanks and, for having me be a part of this. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, we look forward to the next one.